The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to you, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession." And shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And whatever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Lord Jesus Christ, please break the seals and open the scroll that the gospel may ring out from it and through my feeble lips and into our feeble ears speak the truth of your kingship over the nations, and so speak to us that we may be faithful and wise servants of you, our Lord Jesus, slaves like you, seeking simply to do your will, rejoicing at the privilege of being involved in your purposes. And teach and train us, we pray, in this time you've blessed us with together to that end. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Please be seated. And let me thank you for your welcome. Thank you to Pastor Neil for the invitation to be with you. Pastor Neil. Pastor Booth. There's, there's really one pastor mentor who has been in my mind for the last year and a half since I had the privilege of joining him at All Saints. Pastor Neil um, sends greetings along with uh, all the congregation at All Saints. We are thankful for you guys. We pray for you. And I'm uh, deeply grateful for the privilege of being with you, not just today, but this whole weekend, um, sharing with some of the men and um, uh, your Iron Sharpens Iron conference. And I enjoyed it. I hope you did. Uh, and I'm looking forward, by God's grace, to the next few minutes as we spend a bit of time in Joshua chapter 1. I'd like, if I may, to share these thoughts, uh, beginning with an explanation for the reason why I think they might be significant. It seems to me that the book of Joshua as a whole may become increasingly important to us in the next few years, perhaps the next few decades, as Christian churches. And if I explain why, perhaps you'll see what I mean. I can give a simple explanation first before going into more detail. The simple explanation is this. We've lost the land, and therefore we need to reclaim it. Uh, We need to go to war, whatever that means. We need to do battle against the wickedness of the land in which we dwell. We need to reclaim the heritage that the living God has bequeathed to his son first, and therefore to his son's body, his bride, the church. And Joshua, the book of Joshua that is, shows us how to be a a church that will conquer the world successfully. How are we to fight? When we talk about Christians fighting to reclaim their inheritance, what do we mean exactly? The book of Joshua, it seems to me, will tell us. Perhaps a bit more detail will flesh out the character of the challenge, as it seems to me at least, uh, in recent decades, it won't have escaped your notice that there have been some rather significant cultural shifts in the landscape of America. Uh, I want to borrow a rather helpful analysis, I think it's quite helpful, from uh, Aaron Wren. Some of you may have heard of Aaron Wren, the Christian uh, cultural commentator. He's written a great deal on urban life and urban trends. I, I listen to his podcast occasionally. I don't find myself agreeing with everything he says, but I find a lot of what he says quite stimulating. And one particular theme, which he spoke about, I guess about a year ago, the first time, has made its way into lots of different contexts, and some of you may even have come across it. It concerns what he highlights as three eras in the modern American attitude to the church and to the gospel that we proclaim. He calls them the positive world, the neutral world and the negative world. Stick a hand in the air if you've heard this taxonomy. There's a few nods over here. Yeah. Um, let me explain briefly what he means, and then you'll understand what I'm getting at when I talk about the church needing to reclaim the land. The positive world, uh, Mr. Wren says, is that era in American life that's roughly speaking before about 1994, and it's called the positive world because roughly speaking, the world had a positive attitude to the church. And to the gospel. To be a Christian in public life or in the public square or just in public generally, like in your workplace and so on, was seen before about 1994 to be a good thing. A Christian moral outlook was a positive social benefit. Pastors were respected and so on and so forth. In the positive world before 1994 or so. The neutral world from about 1994 to 2014 
was a period of time during which Christian influence over society was declining. And although the Christian outlook and a Christian moral framework and going to church and having Christian values wasn't seen as a negative thing socially, it wasn't seen as a positive thing either. It was kind of neutral, hence neutral world. And then since 2014, roughly, uh, we've entered an era in which it's actually been seen as a negative thing to be a Christian in public life. It's been something you've had to defend in the workplace against increasingly self-confident and strident criticisms of Christian values, things that we took for granted 30 years ago and now so strongly questioned that you find yourselves on the defensive in the context of a world that regards it as a negative thing to be a Christian, negative world. Uh, Mr. Wren's illustration uh, of this is, I think, very striking. Uh, His most memorable illustration It has to do with public attitudes to sexual infidelity and sexual immorality. And he takes one example from each era just to illustrate his point. Some of you remember back in 1987 when Democrat Senator Gary Hart was the front runner to be the presidential candidate. And you remember what derailed his race? In 1987, it was found that he was having an affair and he was forced to withdraw because that departure from basic Christian principles was seen as such a crippling problem for him in public life. He couldn't possibly stand as a presidential candidate in such circumstances. Get to 1998 in the neutral world and President Clinton was impeached over the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And what's really interesting is you look at his approval ratings during the whole impeachment process and they remained more or less constant. They dipped a bit and up a bit and down a bit. He came out of that scandal basically unscathed. Just think about that for a second. Between 1987 and 1998, you've gone from a situation in which a man cannot even stand for president, having departed so catastrophically from basic Christian principles of sexual morality, to a point where a sitting president basically retains the approval of those who approved of him because, hey, it doesn't really matter. What you do in private doesn't really affect your job in public life. And enter the negative world, well, 2016... We all know how much a man's sexual morality matters in his bid for president, don't we? And it's interesting, I I say this to people and they they get all jumpy because they think I'm commending the alternative. I'm not commending the alternative at all, but it is intriguing, isn't it, that the best that the Conservatives could come up with is a man whose departures from basic principles of Christian sexual morality was something that he could boast about. And it seemed in some contexts even to strengthen his hand. You see it similarly in in other areas of public life, at the risk of uh, laboring the point. Uh, We prayed earlier, didn't we, about the issue of abortion. Uh, In 1994... Towards the end of the positive world era, then Senator Joe Biden boasted that he'd voted against pro-abortion legislation 50 times because it was such a positive thing. Such a positive thing. Before 1994 or so. To stand for basic principles of Christian morality and respect for life. Today, we'll hardly need to tell you, in October 2021, when he met with... uh, Pope Francis is now President Biden, we are told that the issue of abortion didn't come up. Well, I wonder why. You see what's changed. Over that time, we've lost our uh, 
not just lost our influence, not just lost some of the numerical strength of ones we have, we're in a completely different social environment where 30 or 40 years ago, to talk about your Christian faith will be something that will be met with perhaps admiration, certainly not disparagement. Now it's something you have to defend against majority criticism. Positive world, neutral world, and here we are in the negative world. And one of the problems is that the church, it seems to me, has not developed a strategy for evangelism and mission and life in the negative world. This is, again, another point that uh, Mr. Wren makes. We had a positive world strategy. You could engage with your friends and neighbours in all kinds of social ways, and the assumption might be that they would admire your faith. People used to say that, didn't they? I wish I had your faith. When do people ever say that now? Uh, there was a, uh, a missional movement um, built in the positive world era around the, the phrase seeker-sensitive. Uh, I think there's a lot of things wrong with um, the seeker-sensitive movement for obvious reasons, but it's really intriguing that there were seekers. <laughs> that there were people who wanted to come in, and you could basically go out and do surveys, as Mr. Hybels, I think it was, did, and Pastor Hybels, and, and try to figure out how he should shape, shape his church services so that the newcomers who came in would find them most amenable. Now, that's the problem, obviously, but, but you can see that he was dealing with the, the actual fact of people being interested. We don't really have that problem so much anymore. We're in a different world. How are we to handle a world in which the people of God are viewed with hostility, or at least suspicion, negatively, there is one book in the Bible, it seems to me, which shouts and screams at us, what should the people of God do in a context where they're trying to reclaim a land that belongs to the living God, in which they are viewed with suspicion and hostility? And that book is the book of Joshua. I've laboured the introduction. Can you see now how the book of Joshua speaks so directly into our situation? You know the book of Joshua very well. Let me just remind you of the, the background to it. The story really begins like everything begins in Genesis 1 with God's command to fill and subdue the earth. And after the catastrophe of Genesis 3, the Lord puts the, the project back on the rails again with Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. And then really decisively in, in Genesis 12 with his promise to Abraham, uh, I'll make you the father of many nations and so on and so forth. Um, uh, he promised uh, Abraham three things, a land in which to live, a great nation of people who will be his and his blessing, the blessing of his presence, and that will be for all the nations of the world, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And as you work your way through the first few books of the Bible, you see those promises being progressively fulfilled. The people grow greatly in number in Genesis and then in the first chapter of the book of Exodus. Uh, they move towards the land in Exodus and in the book of Numbers. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, in the second half of the book of Exodus, and in the book of Deuteronomy, they're prepared for the blessing of God, of wa walking according to his law and enjoying his presence in the tabernacle. And you get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, you are on the brink of the promised land. The third and final part of God's blessing to his people is about to be, to be fulfilled. And the book of Joshua takes us across the border, across the Jordan, into this hostile land, in the final step of the fulfilment of God's promises to his people. And the book of Joshua therefore speaks very clearly to our situation in modern America and in the modern West generally. Just as Joshua was called to lead the people of God into a hostile world so that they could claim the inheritance that had been promised to them, so our Joshua, Jesus, 
leads his church into a hostile world so that the church may claim the inheritance that God has given to them. And there are many, many lessons in the book of Joshua which you may want to meditate on or read through for yourselves as you're thinking about how we're to uh, respond to the challenge that's set before us. Just as the book of Joshua showed how the people of Israel gained their inheritance, so it shows Joshua's people, the people of Jesus, some vital things about how we are to reclaim what belongs to him in the first instance, and therefore to us. And there are two principles, really, that seem to me to emerge from this first chapter. I want to speak um, about both of them. The first is very simple. Uh, Joshua and the people of Israel are commanded to keep the commandments of the Lord. Just do what he says. Keep the commandments of the Lord faithfully. Look with me uh, in uh, the first few verses. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. It's uh, the invitation to step across the border And to start receiving what's theirs. And I don't know, do we have any um, present or former military servicemen uh, in the congregation? Have we got a a former soldier or airman that was one at the back? There are a few at um, All Saints. I've done a quick straw poll of the men uh, who've served in the armed forces. There's one or two who still serve in the armed forces at All Saints. Uh, I think they're pretty much agreed that these are the weirdest preparations for military engagement you can conceivably imagine. Just look at all the things that aren't here. You're about to conquer an area of land about 7,500 square miles. You've got 600,000 fighting men. Where are the weapons? Where are the swords? Where are the tactical discussions? Where's the strategy? Where's the maps being drawn? It's none of this. It is the most bizarre preparation for conflict you've ever seen. And I'll show you what is there in just a minute, when we get to verse 5 and following. But before we do that, I want to show you something else really strange. It is the most depressing beginning to any military engagement in the whole of history. This is not how you stir up the troops and make them feel that the Lord is with them. Look, right at the beginning. uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, uh, Moses is dead. He's like... Oh, and that doesn't strike us as so strange because we're used to Moses being dead. Moses has been dead for three and a half thousand years. Um, But to the ancient Israelite, to the Israelite in Joshua chapter 1, it's like, yeah, thanks for reminding us, uh, actually. Remember who Moses was? The, the, The very final words of the previous book of the Bible. Just turn back one page in your paper, Bibles, as Pastor Booth highlighted earlier. Uh, Deuteronomy 34.10. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. There's been nobody like him. Whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him. For all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. It would be quite good to have somebody like that around, wouldn't it? A man with experience in overthrowing extremely powerful armies. We could do with a prophet like Moses. Verse 12. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. It's going to be great because we've got the man with us. With the great deeds of power and the mighty man of God who's seen his people 
marched through the Red Sea in defiance of the greatest tyrant in the history of the world, the great Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And now, chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Joshua, Moses is dead. And it's really intriguing because that's placed front and center as though to say it looks rather like the plans of the living God do not depend on great men. We live in a celebrity culture, don't we? What do we need? Well, what we really need is a energetic, charismatic pastor. I was talking to Pastor Neil, uh, Pastor Booth last night. Um, you, you remind me of him because you're so wise. <laughs> Um, uh, I forget the name of the gentleman, but it was a, an English Baptist pastor who'd, um, I forget even some of the details, but the, the gist of it was um, uh, he'd become aware of or spoken about or written about some of the, um, the challenges of um, a long-term pastoral ministry where congregations wrongly conclude that what we really need is an energetic and vigorous and charismatic individual to lead us. And such people can be a great blessing, but it would be a mistake, wouldn't it, to imagine that the plans of the living God depend on them. The greatest leader, the greatest prophet, the most relevantly experienced leader the people of Israel have ever had, and actually will ever have, is dead. Now, let's get on with the job, shall we? If you wanted to say... It doesn't depend on the great men. This would be a way to do it. But actually, it it goes somewhat even deeper than that. There's a... um, When you you start to think about it, you you realise it's not just that the great men don't matter. Uh, They do matter. Uh, But they matter in an extremely perverse way. It matters that they die. Think of how many books of the Bible begin with the death of a great man. Never struck you? Joshua uh, begins with the death of Moses. The book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua. The book of Ruth begins with the death of Elimelech and his sons. The book of 2 Samuel begins with the death of Saul. The book of 1 Kings begins with the death of David. This is a bizarre feature of Scripture. In the ancient world, it was um, customary to begin on a positive note with the accession of a new king and to omit all the embarrassing details like his mortality. In fact, after he's dead, better deify him to explain that he's not really dead, he's just of God somewhere. Uh, Scripture seems to think it not merely a neutral thing that the great men don't matter, but it's, it's actually a positive thing that they should matter by dying. We begin a new chapter when the great man dies. Maybe God's Plans do depend on the great men after all. They just depend on a great man who will die. Does that remind you of anybody? It's intriguing. Um, The book of Joshua is all about death. Begins with the death of Moses. Ends with the the death of Jesus. I say so, of course, because um, our Bible translations uh, helpfully um, try to render names in in ways that sound a little bit like what they do in um, 
Greek and Hebrew. So uh, Joshua sounds like the Hebrew, Yehoshua, or something like that. I forget exactly how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, of course, when you, when you translate um, Joshua's Hebrew name directly into Greek, you get Jesus, Jesus. I wonder how we would think differently about this book if it was called the book of Jesus. That's what it is. It's the book of Jesus. And with that in mind, you then look again at chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Well, look at verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Jesus, rise and conquer. Well, hasn't he risen? And all of the pronouns in verses 5 and 6, they're all singular. It's not about Israel. It's all about Jesus. Verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you, singular, Jesus, all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you, Jesus, Joshua. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You, be strong and courageous, Joshua, Jesus. For you singular, shall cause this people to inherit the land that I've given them. The the book is telling you that the great men do matter after all. It's this man who's got to rise. And the Lord will be with him. And then, again, because the whole of history is about death and resurrection, you get to the end of the book and he lays down his life having accomplished his task. It does depend on the great men after all, doesn't it? A great Jesus to lead these people. And what's great about him brings us back to the first big theme I wanted to highlight for you. His faithfulness to the word of God. Just look at verse 5 with me and I'll show you what I mean. Um, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's quite a relief actually, all told. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book, this book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written on it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. You won't have good success when you develop your charismatic public speaking skills. Remember Moses? The man who was so nervous about his lisp or stumbling words or whatever, he didn't want to speak to him. Being the great man is not about um, the charismatic presence. It's not about conveying by your... Aragorn-like demeanour, your fearlessness in the face of the great dark enemy. It is about these unspectacular book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Talking about it. You shall meditate on it day and night. This, This man who's going to lead his people to conquer this hostile world is a man who's just going to be chewing over the word of God. When you see him, he won't be gallivanting around on a great white steed, speaking epic words of uh, exhortation to his people. He'll be 
sitting there with his scroll, pouring over the words of God spoken through Moses. That you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. I think that's an absolutely fascinating moment. Um, It speaks to the fundamental biblical insight that you have to be careful in order to keep the word of God. It is not obvious what it means, and it is not obvious, certainly, to us when we are keeping it or when we are departing from it. We need to take care. How often, how often have you been in one of those um, post-men's discipleship, iron-sharpening-iron breakfast meetings and found yourself in a kind of theological conversation with one or two other people and and said things where you subsequently realized ah, what I said or maybe the way I said it at least it was it was really um, perhaps a bit more uh, emotionally driven than driven by thoughtful careful meditation on the word of God and by listening to this man this member of the body who the Lord has placed here with me. Have you ever been in that situation where you've, uh, you've given voice to your opinion and then realized to your embarrassment subsequently that you, yeah, I probably shouldn't have put it like that. And, and then what you go into this sort of little loop for a while of trying to find something about it that you remember that will help you to rationalize and justify what you said. And, and you get to the point, yeah, no, really, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Oops. Um, and it turns out that it's not easy, it's not obvious, and you have to be careful. I wonder how often we are led by convictions which we formed at the age of 10, 12, 15, 16, simplistically, which we've never really gone back to revise in, in the light of what ought to have been the experience of older age and and more years of teaching, or just getting to know older men and older women, and just thinking and learning and meditating. Why would you meditate on a law? Isn't it obvious what the law says? Well, no, apparently. It's like really not obvious. Really not obvious. So you've got to be careful. I always think there's one other man who's, who we, we, um, we learn he was not careful. One of my heroes, actually, um, Jehu, the great... Um, Israelite commander who became king in in um, in first second uh, Kings nine and then uh, reigns through second Kings ten and I, I like him because of his energetic and vigorous pursuit of righteousness and and doesn't that I mean especially younger men let's be honest isn't there something appealing about Jehu like who's that it's Jehu how can you tell uh, he's driving the chariot like a complete maniac that's definitely Jehu can't see his face I can just see his it's the, the, the driving is the drive, driving of Jehu, son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Don't you, you have that kind of admiration for the man of passion and the man of action? Don't you want to be known like that? And I think that's what, I don't know, in my younger days, you know, before I became so creaky, um, it, I, there's something really appealing about the vigor of that pursuit of righteousness. And he gets to Jezebel and he's like, hello, hello, um, uh, Anybody up there on my side? Yeah, a couple of people. Uh, throw her down here. Great, thank you. Right, next. Um, and, he, and he's just ne- one thing after the next, and one thing after the next. And you get to Second Kings 10, you think, that, this guy is going to, it's like uh, Solomon revisited, isn't it? And you think, no, it's not. Because chapter 10, verse 31, but Jehu was not careful. 
to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. Jehu wasn't careful. I wonder, I wonder if, if Jehu had meditated, like it says here, if we had a bit more of law of the Lord not departing from his mouth, like it says here, if we'd had a bit more, please be careful, please think, consider, rethink, allow your cherished assumptions to be challenged, perhaps a little bit, then you will have good success. And it's interesting that that's connected with strength and courage. Strength and courage is not about um, military prowess. It's Why would it require courage to do this? Courage to admit you're wrong? Or at least courage to ask the question? Um, Courage to say to the man of action, okay, maybe, good idea, but hold fire just one second. Let's think about that for just a little minute. And it's interesting, when you look through the book of Joshua, you see this played out. Um, I want to encourage you to read it at some point. Um, But the three major battles in the book of Joshua, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor, um, they go well as and when Israel is faithful. Jericho, I mean, they don't lift a sword. They just march around seven days with the trumpets and the priests and the ark and all that kind of thing in obedience to the living God. And the battle at Ai goes catastrophically because of Israel's initial disobedience, Achan, with all the, the, the stuff that was supposed to be cherem under the ban. And then it goes well when they're faithful and they root out the evil that's within them. Then in Hazor in chapter 11, there's this massive army And the Lord says, don't be afraid, for tomorrow I will give all of them slain to Israel. It all rests on Israel's faithfulness to the living God. And I just wonder, you know, the carefulness, the thoughtfulness of self-scrutiny and biblical meditation, is, is that what the church needs in order to conquer? A church that's really careful. There's a quotation picked up from here in the book of Hebrews. Um, if you turn to Hebrews 13... Um, the, the little phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is appended to this curious list of short exhortations at the start of Hebrews 13. I wonder if what we're supposed to do is we take that little bit of Hebrews 13 and we think, I'll meditate on this and I'll be careful about it and then I'll watch the Lord give us the land. Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those in prison. Let marriage be held in honour by all. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Be careful and let the Lord conquer the land. Pastor Neil, there we go again, Pastor Booth, he quoted um, the the phrase, ideas have consequences. Who was that? Was that Van Til or Richard Weaver. Richard Weaver. Ideas have consequences. And then we were talking in the car and he said, yeah, it's also true that consequences have ideas. What is he talking about? Um, Well, what we'd like people to do is to get the idea that Jesus is Lord. And we are to see Jesus' lordship worked out in the consequences in our lives. Well, what if it's also true that those consequences have ideas? And that the way that people embrace the ideas is by seeing the consequences. How many of you can testify to that, that um, your faith has been stirred or your perspective changed or maybe you've even been brought to faith in the first instance, not by hearing, but by seeing the consequences? 
I want, what would happen to Nacogdoches if this church was hospitable, kept their lives free from the love of money, let marriage be held in honor by all? So the people saw all this and they're like, wow, must, the Lord your God is with you. They get to the ideas via the consequences because we're faithful to the word of God. Let me speak just very briefly about the second principle that emerges from this text. From verse 10 onwards, uh, it seems to me that this is designed to inculcate the vital lesson that the people of Israel are to stand alongside their brothers and sisters. Verse 10, Joshua commanded the officers of the people. Let me just read through this and I'll narrate it to you. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions food and so on. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And then he gives some specific instructions to a particular group of people and it's really intriguing just to think for a moment what's behind these. Verse 12. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and he will give you this land. Now what's going on with this? Well, Reuben, Simeon, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had been... Sorry, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had been given land on the east side of the Jordan, where Israel already was. Remember that back in the book of Numbers? And there was this great big uh, controversy because uh, those two and a half tribes saw this land was beautiful and good for flocks and herds and sheep and so on. And they said, well, could we have our inheritance here? And Moses completely flips his lid at them and said, what are you talking about? Are you going to leave us and you're going to just stay here and enjoy your inheritance and leave us to fight for our inheritance on the west side of the Jordan? And they all say, no, 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 we, that's not what we meant. And what we meant was, we'll come over with you and we'll fight for you and then we'll come back here and get our inheritance, you see? And then Moses is like, oh, okay, so he simmers down a bit, the temperature lowers. And, and that's the commitment these people have made. Now, here's the interesting thing. What are they going to do when the crunch comes? They've got their inheritance now. I'm all right. My family's sorted. Got our family worship things going on. My kids are all lined up at the front door in height order when I come home from work. It's all nice and fine and dandy. Uh, Here I am in the land of Gilead with all this beautiful space for flocks. I've received my inheritance from the Lord. And Joshua says, hold on a second. Just hold on a second. Before you start enjoying your inheritance, you come across the river and fight with your brothers for theirs. Look with me. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock can remain here in the land that Moses gave you, beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And then they also take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. Then you can return to the land of your possession and possess it. You see what it is? The point is, you're not supposed to be enjoying your inheritance until your brothers and sisters in Christ can enjoy theirs. Your job is not done when your family's all fine and dandy and sorted out. No. Because that's like you staying on the east side of the Jordan in the, in the land of Gilead. I've got my flocks, got my beautiful rolling hills, got all I need. Yeah, but what about the tribe of Dan? What about the tribe of Judah? What about the family sitting behind you? Maybe you've had the privilege, maybe you've had the privilege of being raised in a stable, faithful, 
godly Christian home. Maybe you've had great examples all your life. Maybe you've never really had to struggle with the kinds of basic issues of Christian discipleship and faithfulness that the guy sitting two rows or four rows behind you and just over that side or just over there, his family is actually in a bit of a mess, really. And you kind of know, and it's kind of embarrassing, and you wish he'd get himself sorted out, but for now I'm staying in Gilead to enjoy my inheritance. Wrong. Get up and cross over the Jordan. Go ahead of them. Go and fight for them. What, what could you do? Let's get as practical as we can. What could you personally do for the young man or the young couple at church who, I, I don't know what it is, they're just struggling with something. What could you do? Could you go ahead of them to help them fight for the inheritance that the Lord has blessed them with? Or are you going to be content to remain in yours? Because the message of this final section of chapter 1 in the book of Joshua is that the people of Israel are to fight first for one another. And then verse 16, they answer Joshua, all that you've commanded us that we will do and whatever you, wherever you send us we will go. <laughs> this is really hilarious, this next bit. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Really? I hope we'll do better than that. <laughs> Just... Let's try again, shall we? Just as you obeyed Moses. <laughs> Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commands and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Well, okay, we'll see, shall we? That's, these are fighting words. We, and we say these, don't we, in our, in our liturgies. And we say them when we have new members. When you have a new member who joins a church here and they make pledges, do you all make pledges to them? Yeah? Yeah. We do, don't we? We pledge to fight one for one another's inheritance. I wonder if that's what we need to do in order to reconquer the world. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you that we have a faithful Joshua who never allowed your word to depart from his mouth, who meditated on your law day and night, who clung to you, his heavenly Father. We thank you that you're with him. We pray, Father, that you be with us because we would be with him, faithful to him, seeking to shape our lives by your word as he did and giving ourselves for one another as he did. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to the Lord's table, where Jesus invites us to eat and drink this bread and this wine as a memorial of his death and his resurrection and his return in glory. Let me remind you that Jesus feeds us. Jesus feeds us. The people of Israel were accustomed to being fed by the living God. They'd got to where they'd got to only because they'd been given bread from heaven. It was the Lord's provision in the land that would sustain them as they proceeded into the land of Canaan in the conquest that the Lord had set before them. Always and everywhere, we live only because the Lord provides for us and the Lord sustains us. 
And in this meal of all meals, the one that is the archetype of all gifts from God, Jesus gives us himself. And so come near and feed upon Christ. Come near and receive him, for it is him whom we need. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Father, you've called us into your presence. You've brought us to our knees. You've lifted us up with the assurance of pardon. You have taught us and instructed us from your word and fed us around your table. Now send us out in the power of your spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. That the land may be reconquered. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Amen.